0: Oh of praise shall be forever jesus my foundation in shifting sands my strength and hope No
1: stand with me as we read God's inspired and powerful word together and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to read the first 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1. God <clears throat> wrote, this is God's word, Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. To the praise of his glory. And this is God's word. You may be seated. This morning I want to remind you all that giving is a, is a form of worship. And I'd like to encourage you to give joyfully, prayerfully, and sacrificially on a regular basis. You can, you can do this online or, or in person using the box at the back of the worship center. Uh, or via, via mail uh, using checks. This morning, we're going to be praying for Rick Johnson, who serves locally with Pacific Youth Correctional Ministries, so please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we praise you this morning. You are a great and glorious God. There's none like you, Lord, and you alone are worthy of praise. Your good, your steadfast love endures forever and your faithfulness extends to all generations. You made us, and we're yours. You have lavished upon us every spiritual blessing in Christ, and it's because of this we can come into your presence with joyful singing. But Lord, we also know that all of us here are broken. We're broken people living in a broken world. We each have our own struggles, our weaknesses, our trials, our pains, whether or not it's Bitterness in our hearts towards others. Doing the things we know are wrong. Being influenced by the world's ways rather than living according to your word. Whatever it is, Lord, you know what those things are. Point those areas out in our lives where we are in error. Change our hearts. Bring about repentance individually and within our church body. For you assure us that if we confess our sin, you're faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you, Lord, for the, the salvation that has been given to us. We thank you for saving us from the penalty of sin. We thank you for saving us now from the power of sin. And we thank you that in your perfect will and plan, you will save us even from the presence of sin when we're raised to life eternal. And all this is due to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Thank you, Lord, for your amazing grace and for adopting us as one of your own. Lord, this morning we lift up Rick Johnson and the work that you're doing through him to minister to these incarcerated youth that he meets with regularly. We pray that the power of your word would break down the walls of these kids' hearts and they would come to a a saving knowledge of the gospel. Please provide Rick with wisdom and endurance and reaching out to them with a heart of compassion. Equip him for whatever challenges are before him and as he desires to serve you on a, on a daily basis. We pray for those in our midst who have not yet submitted to the truth of your word. Give them eyes to see and the truth that there would, they would, the truth would break down the walls of their hearts to receive it. We pray for healing for those among us that are sick and suffering, dealing with various ailments. You know, comfort, Lord, for the grieving and peace for the anxious, and strength for the weak. Lord, we we pray that you would prepare our hearts now as we're ready to study your word. Give us ears to hear, minds to be attentive, and a humility to be challenged. May you receive all the praise and glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.
0: Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. i Father, thank you so much for your mercy towards us. Lord, thank you that although we are sinful before you, God, and have not earned a relationship with you, Lord, you have made a way for us to be reconciled with you and to have intimacy with you for all of eternity through the gift of sending your son Jesus to take our penalty by dying on the cross. Lord, we praise you for your grace towards us. God, please help us in your spirit to understand and apply your word and help us to rely on the grace that you show us each new day lord as we walk with you day by day we love you lord jesus and it's in your name that we pray amen
2: open your bibles to ephesians 1 it is a gift of God's grace to be together with you this Lord's Day and diving into God's perfect Word. Praise God. So, in fifteen, excuse me, in 1153, 1153 A.D., Bernard of Clairvaux wrote a poem on the theme of Christ's suffering on the cross, and he put into words what can render us speechless. There were seven sections in this very long poem. Each was referring to a part of Jesus' body. His feet, his knees, his hands, his side, his chest, his heart, and his head. And in 1601, the seventh section, focused on his head, was set to music. O sacred head, now wounded. Part of it goes like this. O sacred head, now wounded with grief and shame, weighed down, now scorefully surrounded with thorns, thine only crown. The third stanza says this. What language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend, for this, thy dying sorrow, thy mercy without end? You write words like that You sing words like that when your soul is captured by Christ, when your soul is possessed by God. I mean, we communicate in words, and yet some things leave us speechless. Maybe a birth, or maybe a death. Some things cause us to gush forth words, maybe a victory, maybe being startled. But some things cause both reactions and God's glorious grace in Christ is one of those worlds words fail you but you have to use words words fail you but you must use words Ephesians 1 11 and 12 uh, it's keeping the general theme of verses 3 to 14 uh, rolling with a really huge statement It's about possessing the inheritance. It's using words to put into words what leaves us speechless. That we are God's possession, that we are predestined to possess eternal life and to live to praise Him. That's true of every Christian. That all in Christ are possessed by God, therefore possessing what God gave and living for His praise. That those eternally possessed by God, possess eternal life. And Paul, he writes as a man possessed. Paul writes as a man possessed by Christ. He doesn't write as a technician. He he writes as a reborn friend of God. His soul has been captured by grace, and I hope that your soul has been captured by God's grace. I hope that today when when you... Listen to these words when you read them in your Bible that your soul is thrilled by what you read. Paul is more spiritual passion than technical precision. He repeats his themes... Sometimes he gets so excited, he's caught up in joyful wonder at God's glorious grace. His soul's just enraptured, and and it's like when you see a beautiful sunset and you want to sing, or you want to write a a poem, or paint a picture, or take a photo and post it up. Or like when someone gets engaged, everyone needs to see the picture. It's, it's, It's an awesome moment. Or when a baby is born, you want everyone to know. And Paul is showing everyone and telling everyone, this is how great God is. This is how glorious God is. This is how amazingly awesome God is. This is how great God is to display his glory in saving us. And he speaks of inheritance. A heritage, a privilege that is assigned to every believer. It's the first time we see this word in Ephesians. But he starts repeating himself in other ways. You see predestined for the second time. You see purpose for the third time. You see the will of God for the third time. And even in verse 11, three distinct Greek words all referring to the will of God. Sometimes in his excitement, he repeats himself. You and I might do that as well. But he goes back and explores a topic a a second or a third time. What I love is the spirit of God led him to do that. He led him to go into such depth. We have this on record forever. The word of God stands. And we just see these cascading words in verses 3 to 14. And the thing we need to realize is in the Greek, in the original language, this is all one sentence. Verses 3 to 14, all one long sentence. And, And it's celebrating. It's celebrating what God has done. In the past, in verses 4 to 6, elect, predestined, adopted. And then in the present, verses 7 and 8, celebrating the blessings of redemption and forgiveness and grace. And then in verses 9 and 10, celebrating the future when everything will be brought under Christ's headship, Christ's lordship. John Stott said, in the fullness of time, God's two creations, his universe and his church, will be unified under Christ, the supreme head of both. And then we get to verses 11 and 12. It just builds on what has already been said, but 11 and 12 give us four important truths. If you're taking notes today, I'll I'll give them all to you right now, then we'll go through and I'll repeat myself, and hopefully you won't miss any of them. First, what makes us Christians? It tells us what makes us Christians. What makes a Christian a Christian? Secondly, what is true of Christians? So what makes us a Christian? Then secondly, what is true of Christians Third, how we enter into the blessings of being a Christian. And then fourth, how we must live as a Christian. So what makes us Christians? What is true of Christians? How we enter the blessings of being a Christian? And how we must live as a Christian. Those four important truths. And it just builds and builds and builds and restates. And it's just... It's it's this burst of praise, it's this benediction, it's this doxology, it's this wonderful, wonderful summing up of everything God has done right at the beginning of the letter. I love it. First, what makes us Christians? What makes you a Christian? Everyone isn't a Christian. What makes you a Christian? Well, what makes you a Christian, you see it in the very first two words in verse 11, in him. What makes you a Christian is being in Christ, if you're in Christ, you're a Christian. That's the root of the miracle, the wonder of our being in Christ, in him. Being in him is the bridge to everything else in the Christian life. As the old Latin phrase goes, repetition is the mother of all learning. Paul like to repeat foundational truths of biblical doctrine and sometimes in the same sentence. And the best example is in Ephesians chapter 1, right here. Best example in the Bible of Paul repeating himself and using the same kind of terms over and over and over again, sometimes using the exact words over again, is Ephesians chapter 1. And especially as Paul is trumpeting the glorious mystery of our salvation in Christ, he repeats the words in Christ. Or in him, continually, 10 times in verses 3 to 14. In that one long sentence in the original languages. This doxology, this praise, and he uses it, or the equivalent of it, in Christ or in him, 10 times. In Christ. It's an essential category of the Christian life. It's, it's the idea of being in Christ or in Christ Jesus, in him. That's used in Paul's letters almost 170 times. 169 to be exact. In Christ, what is it? What is that phrase, in Christ, what does it mean? It's shorthand. It's shorthand for a foundational aspect of salvation. It's shorthand for our union in Christ, our union with Christ. That's a doctrine that is often neglected, often misunderstood, the believer's union with Christ. But it's a central doctrine in Scripture. And these verses that we've been looking at over over several weeks have have told us over and over again. We were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, united to Christ by God's justifying grace alone, through your faith alone, due to the atoning death of Christ alone, that we're in Christ and and, and that he is in us. Galatians 2.20, Christ lives in me. Ephesians 3.17, Christ dwells in your hearts through faith. In John 15, Jesus used this beautiful picture of being the vine and us being the branches. And it pictures our union with Christ as the root of our sanctification, our our growth in Christ. That we are able to bear fruit in the Christian life because we are in Christ due to the work of the Father. In John 15, 5, Jesus said very clearly, I am the vine, you are the branches, And whoever abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do, help me out, nothing, 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 can't do anything of spiritual value apart from Christ. You can't do anything of lasting significance apart from Christ. John 17, God the Son is praying to God the Father and he says, I in them and you in me that they may become one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them as you loved me. That our union with Christ, our union in Christ with the eternal word, with the Son of God, with God the Son, with God with us, our union in Christ, what it means is the Father loves you. As he loves his only begotten Son. We are united with Christ in his death. Romans 6 5 tells us we will be united with him in his resurrection. In Christ, it signifies some truths, a lot of truths. Let me just give you several of them. What does in Christ signify? If you are in Christ, what it signifies is that you are spiritually alive. You're not dead in sin anymore. You are spiritually alive. That believers are spiritually alive. 2 Corinthians 5:17 If anyone in Christ, they're a new creation. The old things have passed away; behold, new things have come. Radically, fundamentally new. The old has gone, the new has come and remains constant. You're not going to have to keep on getting, you know, born again. If you're born again by the spirit of God, if you're regenerate, you got saved, you are now spiritually alive, you're no longer dead, and you're not going to become dead again. You're made alive in Christ, The God purchased you out of the slave market of sin, forgave your sins against him at the price of the death of his beloved son on the cross, and God carefully and meticulously and providentially planned to do that. And that God now is, is even right this very moment, is gathering his people by his spirit, through his word, through the preaching of the gospel, and he's drawing his own to himself, irresistibly opening hearts to the gospel preached as he is organizing the entire universe around Christ and every day, and, and one day, one day, as we saw last week, one day, he will sum all things up in Christ. We don't yet see all things under him, but we will. And if you're a Christian, that means you're spiritually alive, and that means that, that Jesus is literally like the soil where you're growing and the atmosphere that you're breathing and the, the source and the goal of your entire existence. is why Paul said, uh, Christ is my life. If you know him, that's your life as your very life, that you've been transformed, that you've been reoriented from external trying to be good all the time to this inward change such that when the world hates, you forgive. And when the world lusts for more, you are content. And when the world lies and cheats and steals, you give. Only because you've been changed internally. Only because you've been placed in Christ. Those not in Christ are not Christians. They become Christians, they'll be in Christ. If if you're not a Christian today, you're not in Christ. If if you become a believer in Jesus, you'll be in Christ. Believers are spiritually alive, but what, what else does in Christ tell us? Well, it tells us that believers are in God's family. There's this spiritual, organic relationship with Christ, and we are even told to be seated in the heavenly places in Christ. And we're there because we are in him. You I mean sitting here right now, sitting wherever you are, and, and be spiritually seated in the heavenly places in Christ because you are in Christ. Wow. That's like everywhere, every everything everywhere all at once. In this union, then we are one with other believers. This is why in Galatians three twenty eight it says there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, you're all one in Christ Jesus, meaning the ground is level at the foot of the cross. If you're in Christ, it's because God providentially put you in Christ, not because you were good, not because you behaved well, not because you're cut above. Being in Christ conquers the world, overcomes the world. Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17, keep them in your holy name. The name that you gave me, that they would be one even as we are one. Spiritual unity. In fact, John Flavel said it this way, take away union and there could be no communion. If you don't have union with Christ, you don't have communion with Christ. If you don't have union with Christ, you're not in the family of God. But believers are spiritually alive and they're in God's family. And then one more, I'll just give you one more. Believers are, in Christ means believers are, having peace with God. You're not an enemy of him anymore. You're not at enmity with him anymore. There's no animosity anymore. There's no enemyhood anymore. Jesus satisfies your soul. Is your soul satisfied in Christ? You love the Lord Jesus? You have complete reconciliation with God. You're a new creature in Christ. You're in a new adopted family. You have settled peace. You know what that means? You can be at peace with others. You don't have to keep all your grudges and fights. You, in fact, if you have grudges and fights and you say you're at peace with God, you got work to do. In Christ, and by the way, in Christ is a fuller and, and more frequently used scriptural word than Christian. Christian is found three times in the New Testament. In Christ describes Christianity. Christian used three times in the New Testament, in Acts twice and in 1 Peter once. But, um, in christ is used what even in paul's letters just 170 times almost 170 times the word christian as we all know can be an ambiguous word because we make it squishy we we round the edges we interpret it various ways we twist it but in christ cannot be so easily abused i think that's why paul loved in christ so much that's why he said for for to me to live is christ for to me to live is christ to die is gain Christianity is Christ. United with Christ, that means that the umbilical cord of dependency between you and Jesus will never be cut. He'll never leave you. He'll never cast you out. He will always hold you. You will always cleave to him. It's the best dependence. And the only thing left to ask is, are you in Christ? Like, are you a believer? 2 Corinthians 6, 2 says, Behold, now is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, not I'll think about it, now. You might die on the way home. not trying to scare you, but that's the truth. Are you a Christian? Don't play games. One of the things that that bugs me the most sometimes are people that want to play games about, I don't know if I'm a Christian anymore. Stop it. Deal with it. You know. The only thing left to ask is, are you a believer? Behold, now is the day of, you either believe in Jesus or you don't. You either walk by faith or you don't. And if you think that you have to have every question answered and everything worked out before you yield to Christ, you didn't hear the gospel. God opens hearts as the gospel is preached. Christ died for our sins in our place. He was buried. He, he rose on the third day and he's reigning and he's returning. And he's returning with blessing for those who believe and judgment for those who reject him. Verse 13, we're going to look at it next week. It says, when you heard the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. What makes us Christians is being in Christ. That's the first thing we see in these two verses. And the second thing we see, second point, is we see what's true of Christians. What's true of Christians? We see it in verse 11. It's the the, the very next word. So, in him We have obtained an inheritance. So we've obtained an inheritance. That's what's true about Christians. We've obtained an inheritance. Now, I've known people that that in families have fought about inheritances and who said this and who said that and who gets this and who gets that. This is not that. When it says you've got an inheritance, it doesn't mean you have to climb over your brothers and sisters to get what you want. It means that God has given you a possession because he possesses you. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Now, we need a solid understanding of this doctrine of our being heirs in Christ with an inheritance. Obtaining an inheritance it literally means that you've been given something, that God has assigned something to you, that he has determined something about you, that he gave it to you as a possession, a heritage. He destined it for you. He chose you for it. We have received an inheritance. That phrase, one compound word in Greek. So you got verses 3 to 14 is one sentence in Greek, and then we have received an inheritance. It costs us five English words and a bunch of vowels. It's one compound word in Greek. One word. And what it means is there's something future that is guaranteed to happen. There is something future that is sure to happen. There is something future for every believer that is not in doubt. You don't know what's going on tomorrow. You don't know what you're having for lunch today. You think you know. You're, trying, you're making all these plans. All your plans get messed up. Guess what? Here's one thing that is so sure and so certain it's not going to get messed up in its future. And we've acquired what God has purposed in Christ. The verb is very interesting. The word, it normally refers to appointing someone to some office or function. You're destined to do something, you're chosen for something, you're called to something. The idea is that God has chosen every Christian as heirs, given a share of the heritage. God has allotted his new people in Christ the inheritance designated for those trusting in Christ. If you're not trusting in Christ, you don't have the inheritance. You have the inheritance if you're trusting in Christ. And don't go, oh, I'll trust in Christ now because I want, I want the riches. No, no. We're not doing health and wealth here. We're not doing crazy stuff. We're doing biblical stuff, and this is this. This is what it is. It, this takes the idea of believers as God's chosen and adopted children that was spoken of in verses four and five here a step further. You know, like the guy that you know that sells the uh, knives on and says, "Hey, wait! There's more, and there's more to the deal, and all this stuff." Well, in Christ, it's, we have the unfathomable riches of Christ. So in, in one sense, it's always, but wait, there's more. There's just more to come. There's more. Don't go looking around for more of God. He's given you himself, and he will show you what he has for you in the word of God. Don't go looking outside the word of God for something more that you want. That's ridiculousness. No, it's, wait, there's more. God's children are his heirs. Wow. It emphasizes God's act. It makes believers, he makes believers his heirs. It refers to our inheritance. We received an inheritance. What's really interesting is when you look at some translations and you go, well, they've translated it that way. Sometimes it's translated, God chose us as his inheritance. A little brain breaker there. In him we were made an inheritance, one, one version of the Bible says. Or in Christ we, uh, who have been claimed as God's own possession. Either way, here's what we know. Verses 3 to 14, that one long sentence giving us the glorious riches in Christ clearly tells us that God possesses believers and therefore gives them a possession and eternal inheritance. And what this is emphasizing is God's Benefit that He gives to believers in choosing Him for choosing them for Himself and declaring that believers are His inheritance. This remember this is a doxology. This is a, uh, a a burst of praise and God is the subject. You know we always want us to be the subject, right? Come on, give me three ways I can do this or that. No, how about let's just enjoy where we're at here and realize this is all about God as the subject. This is what God has done. The idea that we are God's possession comes from the Old Testament. You see it first in Deuteronomy. Israel was God's inheritance. Deuteronomy 4.20, the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. Deuteronomy 32.9, the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is allotted heritage. The psalmist spoke like this. Psalm 33.12, blessed are the people who he has chosen for his own inheritance. And then 1 Peter 1, it says, according to God's great mercy, he has caused believers to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. He describes it, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And that inheritance is, inheritance is kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. We can't keep ourselves safe. We can't keep our doors locked. We can't find our phone or our keys. And here is God giving us an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance that is reserved in heaven for us, and we are being kept for that inheritance, and it is absolutely 100% guaranteed. We are God's possession, and through Christ we've received a glorious inheritance. Colossians 1 tells us, it says, We're giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his Son, to his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Our inheritance is is actually being enjoyed now in some sense because we have forgiveness of sins, we have joy in Christ, we have contentment, we have peace in our souls. We are possessed by God and we possess what he's given us. And we here as all Christians, not just the super spiritual ones, not just certain ones, all are his heirs. All Christians are his heirs and of the blessings of membership in his household. This is what we're seeing here. First, that what makes us Christians is being in Christ. Start using that. Next time someone asks you, so what's your deal? Well, I'm in Christ. What's your deal in life? What are you following? You know, are you like a religious person? I'm in Christ. What do you mean by that? Well, it means that, that God possesses my soul, and, and I possess everything he gives me. What? Well, it means that I have eternal life in Jesus Christ. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for my sins and was buried and rose on the third day and is coming back. He's, he's reigning now, and he's, he's, he's returning, and he promised to do it. I'm in Christ. I'm guaranteed. What makes me a Christian is that I'm in Christ, but what's true is I've obtained an inheritance. It's not going away. Third point, how do we enter into these blessings of being in Christ? First, we're still in in verse 11, by the way, folks, okay? The, The last point, the fourth point will be verse 12, but we're still in verse 11, so keep looking at verse 11. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, and here's how we Into the blessings of being in Christ, predestined by God's purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. You see that? Predestined according to the purpose of him, God, who works all things after the counsel of his will. And every one of those words means exactly what it says. We were predestined. Underlines God's initiative in redeeming the elect, uh, this allotted inheritance as God's possession because. We have been predestined according to his purpose. And this is interesting. We have seen the word purpose now. This is the third time in Ephesians 1, but it's a different Greek word this time. It is not the same word that we saw in verse 5 or verse 9, which meant good pleasure. Here it means something completely different. The word is prothesis, and it literally means it is a very significant word. Instead of good pleasure, it means something that God sets in front of himself. Something that God decided to put somewhere. And it's it's referring back into the Old Testament even to the consecrated showbread in the Old Testament temple where it was placed before God. And and here it's saying that God, by his own will, set up before himself his people. That the purpose, this was the intelligent deliberation of God. God counseled with himself about it. He didn't ask you, he didn't ask me. The intelligent deliberation the liberation of God with the will of God, which proceeds from his deliberation. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit figured it out. Didn't need you. Didn't need me. He's not going to be asking you your opinion. He is the one who works all things according to the deliberation or counseled issues of his will. He who works all things It comes about by God's works. What does that mean? It means the design of God. God designed it. We we make all sorts of plans. We design things. We do all sorts of things. But we can't bring things into effect. But God does. God works by his own design and brings all things into effect, acting out a plan that he conceived in and of himself. No counselors, no advice from anywhere else. He works all things. His work in you is not a a project that will never be finished. I remember when I lived in Irvine, there was always this house that was always being built and never finished. They called it the Crone Street Castle. You would drive by it, and you're like, yep, it's not finished. People were all upset about it. I remember when I was growing up in Downey, there was this backyard on Lakewood Boulevard where there was a boat being built, and they never finished the boat. It was just an unfinished boat. But God works all things after the counsel of his will. His counsel is in reference to action. That word counsel is the idea that he's going to act. It's a a word that means energy, effectiveness. Some of you can get things done. There's certain people I'm like, I'm asking that person if I want to get something done because they get things done. God gets everything done that he wanted to do. God gets everything done that he planned to do. Some of you are like, you know, I got my to-do list today. I got 25 things I want to do. And you get like three of them done. You feel like a failure at the end of the day. Guess what? God never feels like a failure at the end of the day. And by the way, there's three words in verse 11, all to show that God directs his own actions. I'll keep it prothesis, boule, and thalema. They're all about how he accomplishes his will, the plan of him who powerfully works everything out by his will. It wasn't by accident, it wasn't by anything that you would do. God carefully planned in advance to bless us in Christ. His Almighty will displayed in his saving activity. Wow, God is so good. His effective power. Now that is in contrast with our weakness. I was, I was working in my backyard yesterday with some people that were trying to help me do something and with something very heavy, and it started falling over, and it landed on me and someone else, and I messed up my shoulder. My shoulder's, like, clicking like crazy right now. It's hurting. You know what? God, God's, God's never like, oh, I don't have enough energy to do this. But you know what's even worse? Is that in that day that when, that when this was written, the Ephesians were thinking that magic would do it all for them. Magic spells. And some of you are like, oh, this that's crazy. Oh, we'll we'll talk in a little while. (laughs) But in, in in Ephesus, it permeated Ephesian culture. Magic spells, power through magic. No, God's not using magic here. His plan's focus is the redemption revealed in Christ. His will is the basis for everything he does, for the inheritance you have. And and it's grace to those he predestined for glory. And it's all based on what God says he will do. In Daniel 4, 35, he does according to his will in heaven and in earth. None can stay his hand or say, what have you done? You know, we say to someone, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? When you did that, what were you thinking? You never say to God, what were you thinking? Job 35, let's use Job as an example, shall we? Job. Job 35. Verse 7, if you're righteous, what do you give to him? What does he receive from your hand? That's the basis of Romans 11, 33 to 36. Job 36, who has appointed God his way? And who has said you have done wrong? Remember that you should exalt his work of which men have sung. In Job 41, who has, God says, who has given to me that I should repay him? The answer is no one. Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine, God says. So Job's response in Job 42, verse 2 is, I know that you can do all things. That's where you got to get. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's where you need to be. It's like Isaiah 40, verse 13. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? God's not asking for your opinion. Please stop giving it. God's actions are not accidental, they're not arbitrary. The execution of his purpose is by his own counsel, and we are God in Christ. We are God's predestined possession according to his purpose, his resolve, his decision, his determination, and he works very deliberately to make believers his heirs. He did it according to his own purpose and counsel. It resulted in his holy will, his plan. Our plans get crushed, his plan is always successful, And he does not choose like we do. If we're choosing sides for a team, we're choosing our favorites. We're choosing people that we think can pay us back for something. God does not choose or give like we do. We play favorites. God's omnipotent holiness stands in sharp contrast to our just crazy selfishness. But also, in that context, the contrast would be with Ephesian pagan beliefs. They even thought that Zeus, who they called the father of gods and men, bowed to inevitable uh, fate. He bowed to the inevitable will of the competing fates, plural. Homer uh, expressed it this way that Zeus, he had Zeus holding up golden scales, sorrowfully acknowledging the death of his hero, Hector of Troy, and he said he was sealed by fate at the hands of Achilles. The Ephesians bowed to Lady Luck. So Sinatra wasn't the first one to say, luck be a lady tonight. Uh, Ephesians bowed to Lady Luck or fate in their lives. They would dedicate their actions to the goddess Luck or Good Luck. Stop saying good luck. If you're a Christian, stop saying good luck. It's God's grace. In the gospel, there's no arbitrary luck, but an omnipotent God who graciously revealed the mystery of his will in Christ. Think about your own life. Who do you consult before making a decision? You need to consult. By the way, some people think they know everything, right? Ask people advice. Proverbs says, it is wise to make plans by consultation and seek counsel. You should ask advice. But what you also need to realize is God asked no one advice, nor does he need to. Do you really think that God needs you To tell him. You know, some of us feel smart until we are around people who are really smart. uh, And then we feel inadequate. Um, But the smartest person in the world can be morally stupid. The psalmist said, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. You need to know that God does everything according to the counsel of his will. And you need to think about it. If you're saying, I'm a Christian, don't play around. You need to know that, and then you need to think about it. Like, think about the ramifications of what we're saying. Think especially how how blessed you are to be in Christ. Not because of your accomplishments, but because of what Christ accomplished. Think about being God's heritage, that it was predestined according to the divine counsel, which, by the way, that's the prototype of all subsequent divine covenants that God makes with mankind. That God continually works out his purpose and his providence by his will after figuring out himself. He carefully thought it out. Before time began, God marked out the elect to be co-heirs with Christ and whatever he wants done is put into action. We can't get things done. We try to get things done. But a lot of our plans fail. God ensures. We can't get things done the way we want them. We get upset if someone makes our burger wrong. And God ensures that everything works out in line with His will, and if you are His heir, God predetermined it. It was His prerogative to providentially orchestrate and powerfully put that plan into effect, and that means you are possessed by God as christ 's inheritance given to him, and you possess Christ, which this is why we can sing "All I have is Christ, all I have is christ I, I know how, I know how easy it is to get caught up in the cares and the worries and the concerns of life. I know it. We all do it. We worry about politics and problems and people and finances and getting work done and who you're going to marry if you're single and how your marriage is going to work out if you're married and if you're going to have grandkids and i got to keep up with my family and my friends and all these things. You know what the gospel does? Because you got to take care of your stuff. I mean, be responsible. you got to take care of your life. But the gospel snaps you back to attention to what matters most. The gospel snaps your attention back to what matters most. Jesus' cross work. Sovereignly planned, sacrificial death, burial, resurrection. And so that on your busiest day, on your most painful day, you actually praise God's grace. You can say, wow, God, you are so good. This is going bad, but you know what? I have you. Thank you for your act of love in saving me. Remember Jesus. Remember his torture is, is your triumph and his sorrow is your salvation. Remember That song, O sacred head, let it ring in your ears as you confess, mine was the transgression that sent him to the cross. The Christ went as my substitute to the cross and paid the price for my sin. Recognize how carefully planned God worked to make you his heir before he did it, all independent of you. So what are we seeing in these verses? What first, what makes us Christians? Being in Christ. Secondly, what is true of Christians? Uh, We've obtained an inheritance. Thirdly, how do we enter the blessings of being in Christ? Well, we're predestined by God's purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. So the last thing we need to look at is verse 12. Verse 12. Therefore, how do we who hope in Christ live? How must we live? That's the big question, right? Verse 12, it says this. So that, all that happened, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So we're hoping in Christ, the hope continues. This is not wishful thinking, this is solid anchor hope in whom we have hoped in the Messiah, we were apportioned to be the praise of his glory. And by the way, this is the tension of the, of the end times. We're living in the end times. This is the tension of the end times. He's gonna sum up all things in Christ. It's gonna happen. He is the one in whom we exist. Our participation in this summing up is assured. But now, right now, before it all happens, we live in hope that it will happen. Anchor hope. Not a hope that is fragile. Not a hope that is wishy-washy. A hope based on Christ himself. And since we were predestined according to his plan to bring all things into effect in accordance with the counsel of his will, you put your faith in Christ and your hope in Christ. And how do you live? Look at the verse. Look at 12. To the praise of his glory. It's not a nice slogan. It's real. It's not a nice slogan. It's how you should live. To the praise of God's glory continually. God made his people heirs. So even now, we who hope before the summing up of all things in Christ exist now to praise his glory. That we would live for his glory right now. Body, mind, spirit, and soul in our hearts and in our actions that we who have put our hope firmly in Christ would live to the praise of his glory. That's in the perfect tense, that you would continue doing that and never stop. That affects your identity. That affects your life's goal. But why am I alive? It's to praise God's glory. We're possessed by God, therefore we possess what he has given us. and. The, the question we have to ask ourselves is, okay, how that's going to change? How is that going to change me? How is that going to change the way I live? You can't just go, "Wow, this is great. And, and let me just give you quickly three ideas of how these truths should change us. Number one, if you take these verses rightly, they give you immense assurance that leads to praise. You're going to be praising God. I mean, praise the glories of His grace. So drink deeply of the gospel and think deeply of the gospel and then find many ways to praise God. You have many opportunities to delight in Christ. So how could you use your thoughts and your words and your actions more effectively to praise God? What words might describe your enthusiasm for God's glory in Christ? Write them down in a paragraph, a poem, song lyrics. Never mute God's glorious grace. Just absolutely trumpet. God's works praise what God did or you will give yourself the credit immense assurance leads to praise secondly if you take these verses rightly they will foster an intense worldview adjustment every day that your worldview will be continually recalibrated and readjusted to God's when I was a little kid I liked to whittle if they would give me a pocket knife I would get a piece of wood and make a, a bird or a, or a horse head or what have you. When I was in elementary school, they gave us knives and ivory soap, and we got to carve soap. We got to make. I always made a car, always made a car. Better yet, I loved shaping Play-Doh. Give me Play-Doh now. I'll make something out of it. But is your worldview getting shaped and molded and reshaped by the gospel, or is it by your own mind all the time? God, by his spirit, uses his word and his people and every circumstance in your life to carve away all that ruins and form his image in you. But for that to happen, you have to be thinking. You have to be thinking about the right things more. Be thinking about the right things more than the wrong things. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you would rejoice in Christ and repent of your sins, knowing that your pleasures drive you deeper into sin and self. But often, God will use pain to cause you to rethink your worldview and repent. A friend of mine said the power of your worldview is that it sticks, that it permeates every aspect of your life. So whatever your view of the world is, that's what is sticking. And then my friend said, but effective preaching addresses and attacks your underlying worldviews. You should have a renewed mind. You should repent of your sin. And in the church, you should have friends that actually are not afraid of you and will tell you the truth about what they see. It's like the compass that points true north. Everything pointing to Christ. Is your worldview driven by the gospel? If your worldview is not driven by the gospel, you are either drifting or driving off a cliff. Samuel Rutherford said, No pen, no words, no image can express to you the loveliness of my only, only Lord Jesus. You need to dwell much on Christ. You need intense worldview adjustment. And then thirdly, if you take these verses rightly, It will foster an immediate rejection of idols and superstitious practices. That you would have a spiritual gag reflex. That you would throw up anything bad, spiritually speaking, because your senses are trained to discern good and evil. That the sovereign God, who worked all things according to the counsel of his will, wants you to have a spiritual gag reflex such that you will reject things that are bad for you. We've seen major cave-ins in formerly Christian nations where many of the Reformed preachers came from. And let me just say, there are idols, there are superstitions that we practice that we need to reject from our lives. Things like, if I pray this prayer just right, or if I live just right, or or hey, things are going badly, so I must be getting punished, or maybe I'm not forgiven, or hey, if you do that, you're a liberal, or if you do that, you're a conservative. You must do it my way. And I don't even want to get into the random videos that are served up by your apps and how your randomizers are... Uh, ruling your life you say a word it'll pop up on your screen say you like something you'll get ads and you think oh i just want to do that or i just want that don't be a hindu resigned to fate your feelings are going to come and go it's not good luck it's not fate rules it's good grace rules you're not wearing lucky socks it's not a superstitious if i do this i will get that mantra prayers If you would live to the glory of God, you need to rid your heart and life of all superstitions. Reject the abject idolatry of syncretistic fortune cookie Christianity. Stay busy in the Lord's word. Stay busy in the Lord's work. Stay busy seeking the Lord's will. You won't have time for willful sin because idleness breeds idolatry and sovereignty pushes you to reject idolatry. For God's possession, predetermined to possess eternal life and live to praise Him, and we will know that words will fail us, but we have to pour forth words in praise to God. That song, Sacred Heart, has as its in that third stanza has this: these words, "Oh, oh make me Thine forever, and should I fainting be, Lord." Let me never, never outlive, outlive my love to thee. Lord, we thank you and praise you that it's because of your love that we can love you and have a heart's desire that for you to uphold us, that we, to the end of our days, would be full of, of gratefulness and love for our blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are, Lord, waiting eagerly for your ultimate goal of summing all things up In Christ, it will be revealed in glory. But now, Lord, knowing that we're possessed by you, knowing that we possess eternal life, may we live body, mind, heart, and soul for Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Amen. Would you stand if you're able, and we'll close singing, Be Thou My Vision.
0: To me save that thou. So
2: We close, please be praying for our Turkey Disaster Relief team that's coming back uh, tomorrow night. Alan and Dan and Paul. Pray for Marissa Clark, who's in Osaka, Japan, until the 27th. And then pray for the Rad as they're uh, looking forward to June and July in Japan. And be praying what God has next for you in gospel ministry uh, from here to the ends of the earth. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 10 and 11 to close. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Lord Jesus, may it be true. As we go now, as we have prayed and sung and heard your word and thought about these things, may we go now to be doers of your word in your strength for your glory. We pray in the name of Christ. Sovereign in the mountain air,
0: sovereign on the ocean floor.